Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, April 26th edition, 2017. Uh, we're thankful for you joining us this evening on a, a relatively quiet Wednesday. It sure hasn't been that way over the southeast the uh, past several days with lots of rain and flooding taking place. We'll talk about that here in just a little bit as we go into each individual uh, forecast area. Uh, but we are uh, joined tonight by Victor Genesini, who is going to be talking about predicting tornadoes, how we used to do it, how we're doing it today, and what the future looks like in, in tornado forecasting. So it's going to be a great show tonight uh, that is a live broadcast. So if you have any questions throughout the show, feel free to send them to us via Twitter, Carolina WX Group. We'll monitor that throughout the show and uh, see if you have any questions. Or if you're watching uh, on a replay of this or listening to the podcast version of that, we'll let Victor uh, share his social media account towards the end of the show, and you can uh, ask questions that way as well. So uh, looking forward. This is going to be a great show, and uh, you know it's been kind of active with severe weather already this year. So hopefully this will kind of give you a little insight to what, is what it's like to forecast and predict tornadoes uh, you know, several days in advance. So before we do that, we always like to talk to you about what's going on in the area here in the Western Carolinas. We are finally drying out from rain, uh, anywhere between three to six inches here in the Western part of the state, uh, Eastern North Carolina, definitely got more than that, but a lot of flooding that took place, uh, several uh, school systems on delays, road closures. So you name it, uh, it's been a very rainy period. Uh, so we're, we're thankful for the sunshine today and starting to dry out a little bit. Uh, and then we're going to warm up definitely this weekend. We could be reaching 90 degrees in a few locations. So uh, we go from the rainy, cool weather to sunny and hot weather with just a chance of evening and afternoon thunderstorms. So that's what it looks like right now in western North Carolina. I'm going to go over the mountain, the east of the mountain, to Ricky Matthews, who uh, also dealt with rain, but he also had NASCAR in town. So, Ricky, I know it was a very stressful weekend for you guys in East Tennessee. I tell you what, you ever want rain, just call NASCAR and it never fails. Every single time there's a massive front or an upper level low or a hurricane or, or something that comes along. Like, geez, can't catch a break. I, I've been in Bristol almost two and a half years now, and three of the five races since I got here have had rain. So I'm not sure what that says. Uh, the track still invites me down there. I'm shocked they do, but we'll see if my credentials keep getting renewed every year. Uh, after all the, the rainouts and everything. It was funny when the, the main sponsor of the race was like, that guy's a wanted man when in the media center uh, well, on Sunday when it was raining. But anyway, it has been a uh, rainy time up here in Appalachia. We've been dealing with some now above average temperatures though. We've got up to 81 or 82 today, I think. Uh, average is around 70 for this time of the year. So not doing too bad. We're drying out and warming up. So good news up here. That is some good news. I know uh, everyone's relieved to see a little bit of sunshine. Let's go down to the coastal areas of South Carolina. I'm going to bring in Shay Gibson. And Shay, you guys have had your fair share of rain as well uh, in the low country. Yeah, we sure did. We had a, boy, I tell you, very interesting setup where, you know, very, very similar to the October 2015 flooding. Uh, we had upper low scooting down across Georgia, and we had low pressure off the coastline traveling up along a cold front. So that produced sort of a smaller effect of what we had versus where there was Category 5 Hurricane Joaquin as a source of a convergence at the surface. We actually had just low pressure and a cold front, which was pretty substantial. I mean, we had quite a bit of rain in the Charleston area, and it was divided uh, where the plume was. In fact, I've got a video of this you can bear with. This is actually from the College of DuPage. In fact, oh, you know what I need to do first is I need to share the screen. So let me know when you can see. 
We got you. Okay. So this is quite the setup. This is water vapor imagery. And you can see the setup with the greens over South Carolina and it, the fire hose just turned on. And then it shot up into Southeast North Carolina and Eastern North Carolina. And they got quite a bit of rain up there. In fact, Raleigh holds the highest amount of rain at about 9.91 inches. Uh, so that was significant. Lots and lots of flooding in Eastern North Carolina. Uh, Busted Rock, Virginia got 9.61 inches. Uh, for South Carolina, we had 6.54 just north of Charleston along that plume where the fire hose was turning on. But yeah, we had a pretty good amount of, whoops, sorry about that. Uh, pretty good amount of rain, but we, we're drying out now. We have uh, Atlantic high pressure before and after uh, to sort of instigate the sea breezes along the coastline. So we've had some beautiful weather before. Uh, we just had that two days of rain and now we're back to it again for the next several days. Probably won't see rain again until maybe Sunday night or Monday. That's what it's looking like. So that's uh, South Carolina in a nutshell. And Shay, uh, it's becoming that time of the year. How's, how's those sea surface temperatures looking as uh, people start to uh, go down and hang out at the beach? Oh, it's feeling pretty good, actually. Sea surface temperatures are right around 74 degrees. The shelf waters are slowly inching up bit by bit. Those Bermuda highs are really helping out with that, get some of that warmer water funneled up, up from Florida and, and just off the Gulf Stream with a few eddies. The uh, cannonball jellyfish are washing up everywhere. Of course, they don't sting, but they... They sure do bump you in the water. Uh, we were out kiteboarding the other day. We called it the sushi session. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, that's uh, it. Feels good. It's starting to feel really good out there, especially with the beach temperatures warming up. They're actually able to hold about eighty degrees or higher now, and it just feels great. It's perfect. Perfect timing to be on the beach. Awesome. Sounds good. Well, let's go up to our northern district, Mr. Peter. Uh, I assume you guys have been in the stormy weather as well. I, I haven't really been able to keep up with your weather this past weekend just because of all the weather we've had. Yeah, thank you for all the doom and gloom you sent us. It's very nice. Uh, we haven't seen any sun since uh, Sunday, so uh, it's been nothing but cloudy, rainy, just cool weather. It's been pretty crappy up here lately, but... Uh, Hopefully we'll get some sun back out tomorrow, we're hoping, uh, after three days of nothing. Um, but uh, the NFL draft is coming to Philly uh, tomorrow through Saturday, and uh, it's going to be in the 80s, supposedly, but uh, we may get a little chance of showers or thunderstorms on uh, Friday, maybe Saturday. But uh, for the most part, it looks like just sun and clouds mixing. And then uh, as we go towards next week, it's going to cool down a little bit in the 70s and maybe 60s again. Uh, but it looks like the sunny weather is going to stay next week. So thank God for that. Uh, so don't send us any more gloomy weather from the south, okay? We'll try to we'll, we'll try to keep that away for a while. Good. Peter good. just turned twenty one. I know. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised yeah. I don't have any drinks here. <laughs> well, we're not the stormfront freaks, so maybe that's maybe. right. That's right. Or or maybe you know you could have Cinnabon. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, oh. What? <laughs> So for Victor, who doesn't know yet, Peter is our resident Cinnabon person. So every every night, every Wednesday night, he's always uh, teasing us with his Cinnabon. So, oh hey, the, those those big upper level lows—they look like Cinnabon anyway. So. <laughs> that's that's right. That exactly. is, we even sure had Cinnabon on Twitter with it. <laughs> we did. So Cinnabon now actually follows the Carolina Weather Group because of our interaction with them on Twitter. So, all right, Ricky, before this goes down the hill, I'm going to toss it to you, and uh, I'll let you go ahead and get our, our interview started tonight. I say later this year, we're sponsored by Weight Watchers, and Peter's going to have a testimonial on there. And <laughs> Great. All right. Well, we'd love to talk severe weather as we go into May, and, and perfect guests joining us tonight to talk about severe weather. Victor, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, guys. 
So, so you mentioned, you know, we've got some high or moderate risk days. We've had some high risk days, but overall, severe weather pretty calm this year. Yeah, well, I mean, it started off heavy February, March. Uh, we were running two to 300 tornadoes above average there for a while. And last check today, we're running only about 100 tornadoes above average. So because of the quiet April so far, we've actually uh, sort of lost some ground on potentially being record setting by one point. But uh, since this, really the past two to three weeks have been extremely quiet. And uh, of course, climatology now this time of the year is really ramping up as we go into late April and into May. So yeah, it kind of remains to be seen. I mean, the next couple of weeks certainly look pretty quiet, but uh, you know, there's still some signs on the larger scale pattern that we could end up uh, with an average year or perhaps even above average by the time it's all said and done. So I mean, that's a good point as we look at tornadoes overall. This has been an abnormal season with, with February and March. Uh, before we dive into kind of forecasting the future, let's go back and talk about the past just a bit. And, and are there any reasons why you would say those months were so active? You know, large scale, early in the season, the biggest thing is, you know, the shear is in place, right? So when we talk about severe weather, it's sort of four main ingredients. You have the acronym is actually just, uh, we call it SLIM, shear lift, instability, and moisture. And of course, early in the year, in our transition months, so really when you're talking like February or even your severe weather season, January, February, March, the shear is typically in place and you just have to have instability. And that's typically anytime you have southerly flow off of Gulf of Mexico, you're going to have that moisture source available. And uh, this year, one of the main factors uh, for an active February and March were well above average sea surface temperatures in the Gulf. And specifically right now, it's in the Western Gulf. But when we first started in February, March, uh, it was really everywhere in the Gulf was running two to three C above normal. And, uh, you know, those sort of water temperatures, of course, uh, they interact with the surface of our atmosphere through flux and uh, you know that's that's really where you get uh, your, your moisture source so can you guys hear me okay we got you you're still good oh, okay I think it says I'm presenting so yes. I wonder if I hit something nope that was something on uh, our end you're all good okay yeah so the the idea there is from the ingredient space perspective, one of them is that, uh, you know, the above average SSTs, I think were something that led to an increase in the activity, especially in uh, February, March. As we get into this time of the year, it's, it's a marriage between the shear and the instability. And so far, the elevated mix layer, which is responsible for a lot of the capping that we see, uh, that's been active as well. And so that's one of the... You know, with, you can't get severe storms unless you guys have a cap. And you guys know that out in the uh, southeastern United States. If you have an elevated mix layer that makes it east of the Mississippi, watch out. Because those are some of the biggest tornado outbreaks in the southeastern United States. And this year we've had a very active EML. And it's overspread a large majority of the central and eastern United States. And when that does happen, uh, we do get quite a bit of severe weather. So that's one of the other pieces this year uh, that I think has led to quite a bit uh, above average uh, tornado activity so far. Now, recently, the past two weeks have been really quiet, and I think that is, we've had these really big upper level lows that are progressive. They come through the flow very quickly, and they crash a cold front into the Gulf of Mexico, and that really shuts down severe for three or four days afterwards. So uh, it kind of remains to be seen. I think if this type of pattern continues into May, we're going to have a pretty active May. And so one of the other last points I'll make on this is it seemed like a lot of our storms this year have been kind of QLCS linear kind of convective 
systems instead of those supercell thunderstorms. Obviously, we're not really in that time of the season yet where supercells are more common, but does it seem like that to you as well? No, that's exactly right. I, and that's actually something we've been looking at uh, since I think the last big supercell year. You'd have to go back to probably 2011. And we've had a lot of QLCS tornadoes, and tornadoes are extremely hard to warn for because they're rapid circulations. And you guys know all about the type of stuff. But the, this year, the troughs have been a little bit more of a positive tilt. So when these positively tilted troughs come in, they typically uh, favor linear convection. and lack of supercells. And of course, convective mode is a very challenging thing to forecast for, but uh, when your convective mode does tend to be linear, it makes supercell and tornado forecasting, number one, a lot more difficult, but uh, it typically also brings about fewer tornado numbers. So, uh, you know, you're dealing with these large, large widespread convective systems that bring a lot of beneficial precipitation, but you don't end up with isolated supercells uh, that are, you know, typically prolific at producing tornadoes. You mentioned storm mode and how difficult that is to forecast. That, you know, one of the ideas behind some of the research you guys are trying to do at COD is, is predict tornadoes better in the future. Talk a little bit about kind of how they've been predicted in the past, the, the old school way of predicting tornadoes a day out, two days out, or several days out. Well, maybe some of your listeners remember the late 40s. This goes back to uh, the very first tornado forecast issued at uh, the Air Force Base in Oklahoma. Uh, Colonel Miller and Fawbush, who basically said, you know, they released some weather balloons, got some data and said, you know, we saw, we've seen this before and we're going to go ahead and issue an unprecedented tornado warning. Uh, and at the time, it was really frowned upon to even say the word tornado and warning in the same sentence. Turned out the uh, tornado, you know, touched down only a few miles from the air base and it was considered, even by nowadays standard, would be considered a very successful forecast. Leading up into the 70s and some of the bigger outbreaks, I'd say a turning point was probably the super outbreak, April 3, 74, uh, that, you know, we were, we were well, that was well worn for in many cases. We had outdoor sirens in place and I think we really turned the corner on tornado forecasting in the mid 70s especially with our techniques and some of the things that we were looking for. Like we understood that a jet, powerful jet stream was really important, that moisture was really important, uh, to look for frontal boundaries and features, and you know, you're gonna have severe weather in the warm sector and these sorts of things. Um, then, you know, progressing now to the 90s and uh, 2000s, it's, it's really become an opportunity to anticipate through numerical weather predictions. So instead of just, oh my gosh, this data is telling us something about today or tomorrow. It's more of these models are allowing us to anticipate when the atmosphere is going to be favorable. As far as you know, our dynamic pro projections can go out. Our, you know, our GFS model, European model, for example, can go out. You know, two weeks in many cases. But we're what we're really trying to focus on is this uh, this cusp. It's at the end of traditional numerical weather prediction which is about two weeks, right? Ed Lorenz pretty much showed that chaos theory takes over after 10 to 14 days and you're left with noise. And so we basically say that, yes, the base state transverses to noise, but there has to be some signal, otherwise weather wouldn't happen. So there has to be predictability of the base state. But by using normal methods, which is numerical weather prediction, you're never gonna get there because there's gonna be too much noise. So we're trying to leverage this subseasonal window, which is at the end of dynamic projections and then at the beginning of what we use are basically statistical analogs and methods. So trying to blend the models 
and create a bridge between climate forecasting and weather forecasting. And I'll tell you guys, it's it's a really difficult challenge, but it's something that's uh, it's a really fun problem to work on. And so with doing this, what are you using? You mentioned historical analogs. Are you actually still looking at modeling data, or is it more of like a combination of numerous things? Yeah, for our specific tornado forecast, I mean, it's a combination of things. So obviously, we're using things like the European model, and mostly in that methods, at that time scale, you're, you're using ensembles. So you don't even bother looking at deterministic runs. So, you know, I see a lot of people here forecasting for the next couple of weeks, and they're posting GFS operational output. You know, as a forecaster, you just kind of, right, you hit your face palm because you realize that at that, at that time distance into the future, uh, forecasting does not lend itself to deterministic prediction. You, you, you may think it does, but you will land, you will miss more forecasts than not if you just take raw deterministic output. Um, so there's ways to gather information and ensemble prediction with modeling, but I think the bigger thing is you have to couple your approaches. So you have the numerical weather prediction approach, but you also have the statistical analogs that are leveraging the dynamic output. So for example, at day 14, we have 20 out of our 25 members suggesting that the pattern is gonna look like X, Y, or Z. And now we'll take that information and we'll use that information at the predictable scale to then feed into our maybe statistical models that can help us get a little bit of an edge. And remember that all we're trying to do is beat climatology. So as long as we can say one way or the other, you know, today's gonna to be average temperature, below average or above, that's still better than giving you you know, nothing but just a climatological forecast. So we measure skill based on the climatology. As long as we can beat that, then we're, then we're uh, you know, we're actually showing some skill. In pattern recognition, are you guys going back and then comparing those to, to previous events that recognize the same pattern? Yeah, that's a great question. So the pattern recognition is a big piece of it. So let's say, you know, let's take April 27th, 2011, for example. Uh, we'll take a bunch of days like that. I mean, obviously that's a pretty unprecedented outbreak, but we could take several of those types of outbreaks and then, you know, use reanalysis data and, you know, back up the pattern to see, okay, this tornado outbreak left behind an atmospheric fingerprint. So let's go back two weeks prior to that event and try to figure out what was going on in a large scale pattern that may have modulated to create, you know, atmospheric conditions that were really favorable for these outbreaks. So yeah, it's it's also, uh, you know, when we were talking on the pre-show a little bit about forensics, you know, and forensic analysis, in many ways it is going back and studying these in a case study manner uh, and digging through every aspect of them to try to leverage any sort of information that you can find. And in many cases with these big outbreaks, you'll see things were going on over the Pacific Ocean uh, that could have led you, you know, to believe that these sort of outbreaks were at least possible. Victor, I was going to ask you uh, something very similar to that. I was just thinking, do you ever use your basic intuition as well when you're constructing these these patterns? I mean, you you got uh, teleconnection from the Pacific. You have all all kinds of um, weather systems going on. The Hadley cell, all of these things happening. Uh, do you use global oscillations as part of your factoring as well? Yeah, that's we use teleconnections absolutely. So one of the ones that we rely on in our our research uh, sort of showed was a really important one was angular momentum of our Earth. So you know, it's uh, angular momentum is actually pretty straightforward. I mean, the Earth is rotating and our wind is blowing relative to the Earth. So we can kind of measure that based on you know, is the jet stream highly meridional? Does it have a lot of waves? Is it very progressive? or are a majority of the jets across the globe very zonal in nature? 
And so we use that. We use teleconnections like Enso, of course, Madden Julian oscillation, Arctic oscillation, uh, a lot of the ones that your viewers and yourself are probably very familiar with. But you, you know, your interesting your interesting point was uh, intuition, and uh, there there is some degree of that, although it's forecaster intuition varies based on experience levels and also varies you know it's not it's a subjective portion of the forecast so there's kind of that little extra pepper that you can put into the forecast as a human that the models can't do right and that's always where i think humans will always be able to beat the models because they have that ability to spice up that forecast at the very last tailored moment to say no i've seen this before and i remember this happening and of course Past performance doesn't guarantee future results, but in many cases, the forecasters, good forecasters, can always add some value to the numerical weather prediction output. That's a good point there, uh, Victor. You know, going back to just a couple of weeks ago, uh, here in the southeast, we had a, a relatively high risk severe weather day, according to the models. Uh, but as we went into the night before and the day of, you know, that the cold air wedge really just stuck in place here in the Carolinas, and we didn't see that severe weather outbreak that the models were depicting you know forecasters here we, we kind of knew what the cold air wedge was all about but you know the models were kind of printing out a different thing so it's a good point that you know forecasters still have that that ability to, to pick out and, and decipher you know i've seen this before and this may not pan out the way it, the models are saying hey i used to live in athens georgia and i i know the wedge right i know the cold air damming scenario and i'll tell you what the night before that high risk was issued i did a facebook live broadcast and i said there is not going to be a lot of severe weather in the eastern care the western carolinas in northern georgia because of cold air damming and sure enough uh you know forecaster this is where that you know a little bit of flavor comes in forecasters and you're able to you know just tweak that nwp output enough to be able to get a more skillful forecast so yeah, that's definitely a part of it. And I think as forecasters experience more and more events, and they mature, and they you know they they get more of the uh, these pattern recognition arsenals in their tool belt, that they can you know I've seen some of the really good forecasters that I know are incredibly they pay a lot of attention to detail, and they really dissect these events to say okay what went right in the forecast, what went wrong, and they learn from their mistakes. And I think that's a lot of what we don't do anymore is one big piece to forecasting that people just kind of let go by the wayside is verification. I mean, if you make a forecast, you have to verify. Otherwise, what are you really learning? I mean, celebrate your victories, but learn from your mistakes. And I think that's something as a community that we need to do a better job of. So. That's my soapbox <laughs> statement for the evening. Let's do a better job verifying our forecast. You mentioned details and all of the little fine details that go into this. Well, some of <clears throat> I am losing my voice tonight for some reason. So the, uh, you know, the, the modeling has become so impressive now. And we were talking about this a little offline before the show that we have HRRR data. We've got WARF data. We've got so many of these models that are such high resolution and you would think would provide more detail, but it seems like in some instances they're perhaps hindering us. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I see students, I'm trying to teach them all the different model acronyms and, you know, they spend most of their time just playing around, clicking through all the model fields. And I, I think for, for people that understand models, uh, that's, that's a great thing for them. Uh, you know, they get to see all the fields, they get a lot of this output, it's pretty colors, right? You, and, and it sort of lends itself a little bit to wish casting, I think. 
Because if you don't like what the GFS says, just pull up the name. And if you don't like what the name says, pull up the wrap. And if you don't like the wrap, pull up, you know, the European. But uh, I see less and less model interrogation. So kind of like, all right, the model's producing precipitation, but why is it producing precipitation there? So what are the vertical motion fields look like, for instance? You know, what on the synoptic scale is causing upward vertical motion there that's leading to precipitation? So um, I get it. I get it, guys. Forecasters are in a time crunch, and they have to skip to the forecast. But uh, you know, in many cases, that uh, you, you can definitely add NWP output, uh, add to NWP output by being a, a really good, you know, what I would consider forensic forecaster and, and filling in those data void gaps. And so that's what I try to tell my students. I think you can always add value. Uh, you just have to figure out the problem of the day and uh, and really understand where the models do well and where they don't do well. In your experience trying to forecast tornadoes on a shorter scale, uh, perhaps for chasing or other stuff, how much time do you think you have to devote to looking over modeling data before you have a fair understanding of what may happen? Well, I have a little bit more of a luxury. I'm not at the SPC and I don't have to write a long discussion trying to, you know, flesh out all of my thoughts. And so, you know, my uh, hats off to the folks at the National Weather Service offices and the SPC who are constantly writing and justifying their forecasts and this sort of thing. For me personally, when I'm storm chasing, I'm, I may, you know, I'll start looking at the models maybe a week in advance. I'll try to put some pieces of together, you know, at, at a week or two out, I'm not interested in individual locations of tornado events. I just want to know whether or not the synoptic scale is going to be supportive of severe. And if that is yes, I'll kind of follow things more and more. And then maybe two or three days in advance, I'll really start interrogating the deterministic output. And then of course the morning of, uh, there's only one thing that you can do on the morning of. If you're using models on the morning of, then you're doing it wrong, to be honest with you. Uh, the first thing I do with my students when we wake up is we'll do a surface analysis. So we'll look at all the weather balloon data, we'll do a surface analysis. I can't tell you how many times that I've ignored her output or wrap output or you know some other convective allowing model output and just went with what the surface field said and what the satellite data said. And we've been successful doing that. So, you know, there are definitely times when the her can add value. If you're if you're just one of those situations where I, I really honestly don't know what's going to happen, and the her can kind of then guide you a little bit. But um, man, more often than not, I would say that waking up in the morning and just looking at observations and you know being that forensic forecaster, I can beat the models nine times out of ten. So we kind of got sidetracked a little bit from from our original uh, topic of conversation and some of the research you've been doing. Um, can you give us like a, a case study or maybe an yeah. example of something you've gone back and looked at in this research to try and predict into the future? Yeah, so we do something called uh, reforecasting. So what we'll do is we'll build models. Uh, let's say we, we build a model based on 30 years of data. Okay. And then what we'll try to do is run that model on an independent set of 30 years worth of data. So in many cases, you don't have enough data to do that. And what we'll do is we'll maybe take a 30 year period. So let's say 1980 to 2010, okay, something like that. We'll build the model based on maybe 15 years of data and then we'll run it to see how well it does on the other 15 years that are left in the data set. And so that's kind of how we build these. We, it's called cross-validation. It's a statistical approach to kind of tailor and tune your models. And then you, know, you can see how well they perform under different scenarios. But I'll just say this year, our, uh, our team, which is uh, ERTAF, the extended range tornado activity forecasts. We put these on our webpage. We issue these every Sunday night and they're forecasts for weeks two and week three. 
uh, for tornado activity. And I'll just say, you know, we were talking about the possibility for increasing severe weather in early March uh, for later in that period. And, you know, that was a successful four and a half month forecast uh, because we saw one of these big oscillations what we really look for are extensions of the jet across the Pacific Ocean and then subsequent retraction and collapse of a big trough into the western United States. And in the springtime, whenever you have a trough coming into the west, it's going to have the, at least the potential for severe weather. Maybe not tornadoes, but you're going to have severe storms. And, uh, that, you know, we were really successful. We, I've talked about, you know, on uh, I have my Twitter up here. We were, uh, let me just get this right here so I don't flub the dates. But... Uh, so on April 8th, you know, so quite a bit of time ago, I said, ignoring some noise events, the next favorable base state for severe weather should emerge by late April. And, you know, here's this, we've had, you know, a couple enhanced risks. We've got a moderate uh, today. Didn't quite pan out for tornadoes, but still going to be a lot of wind events. And then, you know, the, the big portion of the week is still yet to be here. Uh, we're going to have quite a bit of severe weather uh, not only tomorrow, but it looks like Saturday is going to be pretty, in, uh, Friday and Saturday are going to be really intense bouts of severe weather. Probably, I would say, at least, uh, you know, a couple enhanced risks, if not a moderate risk for Saturday. So uh, these are sort of things that, you know, you can't anticipate. You might not be able to anticipate, you know, all right, you know, Myrtle Beach is going to get hit by a tornado two weeks from now and X, Y, and Z. We can't do that. But what we can say is, you know, we're moving into at least a regime synoptically that is going to support severe weather okay. so if, that's that's really really focused uh right now and so i'm glancing at your site a little bit here and, and perhaps i can screen share it and we'll see if we can't get it to come up give me one moment and we'll see if i can't get that to work there it is all right so so could you take us through this a little bit i, I see at the top it says week two week three forecast yeah, below average I assume that's below average activity and then confidence would be just the confidence in your forecast? Yeah, absolutely. So let me just walk you through this really quick. Uh, so yeah, the week is the week that we're forecasting for. So you can see our week, this was issued on Sunday. So our, we do this by you know a Sunday to Saturday forecast. So the week two forecast would have been April 30th to May 6th. And we're calling for below average uh, tornado activity for that period. And we have medium confidence. So we just do low, medium, high based on how confident we are with some of the signals. And then May 7th to May 13th, we're forecasting average conditions with lower confidence. And you can read, uh, if you scroll down to the orange text, it has our forecast synopsis. So we write a small, uh, basically write a small blurb about what we're thinking. And uh, we'll talk about MJO. And so that's where the tech, that's our little bit more technical discussion based on some of these oscillations that Shay mentioned. Uh, we get into the nitty gritty sometimes with those discussions. And then a lot of the text, the if you just go to the uh, it says an information page with explanation of statistics can be found here so any of your viewers that want to look at that can go there but uh, we basically have these different categories for the number of tornadoes that were report reported and what we're forecasting for so if you go back to that the page that you were just on a couple of things to look at in the very far right hand column it says verf 2 and verf 3 that's just verification of our forecast and so Basically, uh, a green one is a good forecast, meaning that we fell into that percent of normal threshold. A zero means maybe we forecasted average, but it was below average. So we were uh, one category off. And then a negative one means we made a really bad boo-boo where we forecasted BA conditions and it ended up as AA. 
So you can see for week three, we've had some pretty awesome success. We haven't missed a single week three forecast for tornado activity yet this year. Uh, we have our, this is one of the things I talked about, verification being important. You know, I think these longer range forecasts, you know, whether they're seasonal hurricane forecasts or whatever the AccuWeather 40 day forecast, I want to see the verification stats, right? I want to see that stuff. And, you know, we're pretty transparent about how we do this and uh, all our data is there for everybody to look through. And when we make forecast errors, uh, we own it and we learn from it and move on. So I'm pretty proud of our team. It's not just me. You can see all the people listed there at the bottom. Uh, this is very much a team effort right now. It is in looking at um, the the forecast page there, is this do you ever get specific into a region if you feel like one region has a higher risk versus another risk or area, or is that still kind of too detailed that far out? No, that uh, great question. So that AA period that we were forecasting in uh, mid to late March, uh, we actually called for activity in the southern plains for that. So, well, sometimes we get, you know, specific as in of maybe a geographic region. So I've I've said in my discussions before, you know, BA or A or AA for the southeastern United States, but you know, at week at week two and three, that's about all the specifics that you're going to get, and it's not until about you know that day seven, day eight forecast from the SPC that you're probably going to really start highlighting aerial locations for severe. So I see these are issued, looks like once a week. What do you, what's the process like through the week leading up to a forecast? What do you look at? What, what are some of the things that go into making that forecast? Um, it's a lot of time, uh, but <laughs> mostly, honestly, I'm just, uh, we spend a lot of time just Sunday afternoon preparing because, you know, a lot of us, we have other jobs, we have things we're doing. So all of us are kind of keep an eye on the dynamical models, but we don't actually run the ERTAF model and meet as a group until Sunday evening. So every Sunday evening at seven o'clock central, everybody logs in. We, each of us are kind of an expert in our own different teleconnection. We all talk about what we think the pattern's gonna be like. And then we just kind of take a democratic vote. Like, okay, what do you think? I think A, what do you think? AA. And so we sort of just average it out. I try to capture that discussion subjectively in that little forecast synopsis box and then put it up there for everybody to check out. So. There's been, it's been great so far, good feedback from people. They really enjoy the discussion. And we've thought about in the future, you know, having those sort of discussions uh, open to the public where at least people can listen in on them or participate if they even want to. So I'm always, if people have ideas or whatever, you know, this is a problem that is not gonna go away anytime soon. The subseasonal forecasting problem is uh, something we really need to invest in. And I'm really happy to see that the Congress and you know eventually President Trump passed the Weather and Forecasting Innovation Act. I think that is there's a whole section in there about subseasonal forecasting, and I'm I'm really hopeful that this is going to push that research forward. How big of a field is there for research like this? Sorry, Scott, I didn't mean to catch up. It's you know traditional. That's that's interesting. That traditionally it's been really big in the private sector, right? So the private sector is really interested in energy demand from temperature or precipitation for agriculture. But a lot of the research uh, in this general region is still very, very young. And I think there's a lot of low hanging fruit and things that we can discover probably pretty quickly, but uh, it is gonna take you know teams of people working on different aspects of the problem. So I feel like in many ways, it's very young and we have a lot of uncharted water to sort of map out. And Victor, with this research, um, it's very helpful for the weather community 
uh, the spotter, uh, the storm chaser, basically. But it also seems that it could be beneficial to the emergency management community and trying to, you know, let them know, hey, a couple of weeks from now, we need to watch this scenario. Have you had any feedback from, you know, the emergency management community or anybody like that with, with your research? Yeah. So when I was when I met with you last uh, in Norman at the Tornado Summit, uh, that's exactly right. I was giving a, a, a talk about this process to an emergency management folks. I mean, the reality is, fellas, that you go tell somebody on the street that two weeks from now or three weeks from now, there's going to be a potential for increasing severe weather. They look at you cross-eyed like, what are you talking about? I don't know. Uh, who cares? Like you tell me when there's a tornado in my backyard, right? Sort of thing. So this is not going to change the way we do watches and warnings at all, but we are hopeful it will change maybe the way emergency managers prepare for these sort of events. So for instance, let's, let's just play a scenario. We're forecasting tornado activity three weeks in advance. Emergency managers start thinking about preparation, movement of assets. FEMA starts getting involved, potentially moving or thinking about what they're going to need to do. And the National Weather Service can just send out a tweet on social media just saying, hey, uh, you know, might be a good week to think about clearing out your your storm shelters or something or reviewing your severe weather safety plan. So it, you're right. It is definitely more in the emergency management aspect. And then, uh, of course, the other industry that's kind of interested in this is the insurance industry from a loss perspective. Let's say you guys nail it. Let's say, you know, week two and three are locks. You know, you're forecasting it all the time. Pretty accurate. Do you move onward and onward and onward to get weeks and weeks and weeks later? Uh, so if I understand your question correctly, like if we see something coming out four weeks in advance, do we just kind of keep looking at that or do we wait till it gets within our window? Well, what I'm saying is, I mean, you guys are doing weeks two and three now. So let's say, you know, you get really accurate at predicting tornadoes two or three weeks out. Um, w would you look longer? Oh. <laughs> oh, good question. Uh, yeah, <laughs> if we can, uh, you know, right now the traditional SPC, outlooks right end at day eight so we were like okay well let's pick up at day nine which is kind of weird because that's not a week so we're like well let's just call it two weeks let's just say beyond traditional spc two weeks to three weeks and our question when we started was do we have any skill whatsoever at that time frame and i think what we've demonstrated over the past three years is that yeah we do have some skill there uh can we get better at maybe predicting individual numbers you know, remember, right now all we're doing is above, below, or average. So I think there's room for improvement just in our current methodology. But man, yeah, if we can, you know, if we can under, you know, uncover some golden nugget that allows us to go be even beyond that, that would be fantastic. But for right now, we're really focused on this subseasonal aspect. I'm sure the insurance companies would never turn down a, a little more advanced notice for a Absolutely. big weather event. Uh, talk a little bit about some of the other people on your team. I mean, you know, you're doing a lot of the research, but you mentioned you guys are collaborating and isn't it amazing that you can collaborate, you know, for video chat or over telephone chat nowadays, think of uh, 30, 40 years ago and the difficulties in doing research from different groups, but speak a little bit to the other people on your team and how you all are coming together to do all this. Yeah, it's great. I mean, like I said, every Sunday we're all getting together and this original research stand out in a conversation with a graduate student at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb. His name's Al Marinero and he published this monthly weather review article with me. And we just got into one of these, you know, sort of Carolina weather group discussions. Just, hey, what were you doing? What did you notice this week? And we were talking about severe weather activity. And we we're like, yeah, I think this has something to do with 
angular momentum and jet stream patterns. And you know what? We started looking at it and we started processing the data. And I'll never forget that first, you know, the first plots we were making and my jaw just kind of went like, oh my God, like there's that strong of a link. And, uh, you know, we had never seen that sort of a link with El Nino or, or even with Madden-Julian oscillation, which I did a lot of work with, with one of my other co-authors who's on ERTAF, Brad Barrett from the U.S. Naval Academy. So Al right now is in the private sector uh, doing some stuff, but he still works with us. So that's a, a private sector collaborator. Uh, Brad Barrett at the U.S. Naval Academy, who does a lot of work on Madden-Julian oscillation. I published a paper with him in geophysical research letters about MJO and tornado activity. Um, John Allen from Central Michigan University, who's an, uh, really the foremost expert in El Nino and tornadoes. Uh, so he's on our team from the ENSO and sea surface temperature perspective. Uh, David Gold, who works at IBM Weather Company, who is a long-range sub-seasonal forecaster and uh, really awesome data scientist there. So that's another private sector collaborator. And uh, Paul Servaca, my colleague at College of DuPage, who does a lot of teaching and development on the website with us. Uh, so he was kind of a natural collaborator being in my department. And then somebody new who just hopped on last week, uh, Mike Ventrice from Weather Channel, Weather Company, IBM, who does also a lot of sub-seasonal range uh, forecasting. So we're building the team at, like almost every week, it seems, and adding people on that have ideas or methods. And, uh, you know, it's it's better when you have a lot of people in the room to bounce ideas off of. So I'm, I'm really happy that they're joining us. And uh, I look forward to more collaboration with those guys. And any else, anybody else on your... Uh, any of anybody here or listeners that have ideas that think they can contribute? So, is this a student thing too that you're you know uh, accepting research students for? Um, it is, and I will be uh, next fall. So I'm transitioning into a little bit more of a research role in the fall. I'm actually sadly, very sadly, leaving College of DuPage, uh, my my home, my last my home for the last five years. Um, I love COD and I love what we do, but I'm transitioning to a more of a university setting for graduate students and I'm looking to now start taking on graduate students to really tackle this problem. So I'm heading to Northern Illinois University in the fall, which is not very far from COD and they're like a natural collaborator with us anyway. So I've had a lot of interaction with faculty in there anyway. So yeah, in the next couple of years, I'll be looking to take on some masters and PhD students to really begin tackling the sub-seasonal problem. Awesome, well, congratulations. Shay, yeah, thank you. you yeah, um, I really wanted to hear a little bit more discussion about ENSO and the MJO signals and how you track the signals, uh, what you're looking for exactly and how your ENSO, that whether it be El Nino, Neutro, or La Nina, how that affects your forecasting with your, you know, with the subtropical jet, the polar jet, and the mixing, all of these things are connected. So talk a little bit about ENSO diagnostics and how that helps you out. Sure. So. ENSO is a much longer term signal, as you guys know. So like heading into a season, it's kind of you're either, you know, ENSO positive, you're ENSO negative, or you're sort of neutral. And that sort of sets the base state or the tone for our forecast for maybe a, a total, a full month, right? And since that's a little bit more of a seasonal signal, we use ENSO a little bit less, but more sea surface temperature anomalies, say, closer to the continent. So Gulf of Mexico I mentioned earlier. The Madden-Julian oscillation being a little bit more of a sub-seasonal, you know, 40 to 60 day oscillation, when we're looking really for specific phases of the Madden-Julian oscillation. So we're watching for convection over Africa, we're watching for convection uh, over the Indian Ocean, and when we see certain signals of that convection, so we really just watch satellite and we watch reanalysis data, like 
we get big flare-ups of convection and outgoing long-wave radiation, that will shift or move the Madden-Julian oscillation cycle. And so depending on what phase, the MJO has eight phases, depending on what phase the MJO is and where it's forecasted to go, uh, and then you can sort of where it's forecasted, and then if you continue the propagation around the circle, uh, you can, you know, start to make some composites saying, you know, all right, when MJO is in favor, when MJO is in phase one, that favors a trough in the east. When MJO is in phase two, that favors X, Y, and Z. And so that's a little bit more of our homebrew sauce that each individual person brings as expertise to add to the discussion uh, to say, you know, Brad is a good example because Brad's kind of our MJO expert. And Brad's like, well, you know, the forecasted MJO is wants to go one, two for the next week. That favors a big trough in the east and very cold weather. And so I think for week two, we should go BA purely from an MJO perspective. And so we kind of, it's not, it's never just, Shay, as you guys know this, it's never just one oscillation, right? If you only look at one oscillation, you are going to get burnt. Uh, it's a lot of these different teleconnections playing in the atmospheric orchestra concert together. And so you have to evaluate each of them and then sort of figure out how they're all playing together to modify the synoptic weather pattern across the U.S. So in that regard, all of the different teleconnections create a, a very challenging problem. But yeah, that's a great question. And you know, there's MJO, and now you know we've been really focused on the GWO, which is uh, angular momentum, and uh, forecasting those phases. Oh, wow, I was going to say PDO, but wow, yeah, that that makes total sense. Yeah, PDO, PNA, PDO, obviously being a little bit more of a you know longer term signal where you can go through active and inactive phases. But we're really focused in on these oscillations that. Uh, show their timescales anywhere between 30 and 60 days. So, for example, last year was a great example of an El Nino, you know, below average activity. But even within below average activity, there's going to be oscillations and noise within that. And that's really what we're trying to focus on. There are other people like John Allen who are a little bit more interested in the long seasonal cycles. And that's where ENSO comes in a little bit more. Yeah, I bet, I bet you could get a lot of information, especially being so new, like, you know, eventually over time, you'll have decadal information about it. So that's um, fascinating, fascinating studies you guys are doing. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's one thing I should mention is that like every year we get a new data point, which is great, right? We have a whole new set of forecasts, a whole new set of a whole new training set of data. And uh, man, uh, we are we are learning. The learning curve is steep, but we're learning very quickly. And that's a good thing when you have all of this reanalysis and model data in front of you. Uh, this, these large data sets, guys, as you know, they're, uh, meteorology and climatology are, are a perfect poster child for big data. And uh, it takes data mining to go through that data and pick out the signal from the noise. And so, Victor, you, you, you do a lot of research, you know, looking at the models and, and things like that. But another part of your research, um, maybe a little bit different, is uh, you do go out in the in the plains and chase a little bit. So I know we're uh, almost closing in at the top of the hour. So uh, talk to us a little bit about your chasing experience. You know, maybe uh, what that brings into uh, into your your research, and then maybe just a few chaser stories uh, as we uh, close in here at the top of the hour. Oh, I got plenty of chaser stories. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, I, I'm a very lucky individual. Uh, I, I do get to chase thunderstorms a lot. Uh, in fact, last year I topped out at about 25,000 miles for the year. 
Um, and so I spend a majority of May and June in the plains uh, tracking what I love to study. And I think that's a big, that's a big component. Uh, I feel like anybody who wants to really get in depth and passionate about what they study for, they should have an, an opportunity to experience. Now, obviously, if you study black holes, you can't just go experience black hole. Right? But when you have the opportunity to, to experience supercell thunderstorms and hurricanes or whatever it is that you like to study, go do it. Uh, because you learn, I learned so much in the field that I can't learn in textbooks. And I, I can teach students things in the field that come to life uh, that are in textbooks, you know, that they may not get right away. So I'm very lucky. We lead I, every year. We have five trips from the College of DuPage that go out for 10 days. These trips are open to the public. We've had folks from Fort Bragg, a whole team from Fort Bragg uh, uh, military, come up and take one of these classes with us just to learn about thunderstorm forecasting. So we've had people age 18 to 80. You don't have to be a College of DuPage student. You just come and sign up and go on our trips with us. And we take you out in the plains and observe thunderstorms safely. And we're launching weather balloons, taking data measurements. We teach you how to forecast for severe weather. And the best part is you get to see portions of the country that you'll never get to see again in your life because there's not many of us who are ever going to go to, you know, for a reason, you know, unless you're storm chasing, uh, unless you want really good barbecue or something, right? So there's a, there's, it's just not a really cool opportunity to get out there and uh, experience nature. And that's what I love about it the most. So we have a, a couple trips. Our first trip is actually leaving uh, they have the meeting tomorrow and they're leaving on Friday and they'll be out for 10 days and then my first trip with the college goes out the first week in June and I do plenty of you know personal chasing as well but uh, yeah there's uh, there's a lot to learn out there when you're near these storms and I feel like I've become a better forecaster because uh, I, I am also a chaser I think uh, that's an open invitation for uh, the Carolina Weather Group to go join Victor <laughs> yeah. out in the plains sometime. Let's go chase. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, anytime. Anytime, oh, guys. The, uh, seriously, though, uh, you know, it's a commitment, right? Because it's 10 days, and not a lot of people can get 10 days off of work. But, man, if you can get a week off of work there, we leave on the Friday, and you come back the following Sunday. Um, I'll tell you what, if, you, if you've never experienced the Great Plains and, and you're a thunderstorm person, if you're like a person that likes to sit up at night and watch lightning outside and you just have a fascination with thunderstorms, I mean, a lot of storm chasing has been portrayed by this, you know, thrill-seeking culture that wants to get as close as possible to tornadoes. And, you know, there are definitely those chasers that are like that, but it's a small percentage. I mean, many of us are out there because we just love meteorology and we love storms. Victor, you're also quite the photographer. I see those pictures back there. Are those all yours? Ah, yes. Uh, yeah, my blog is, uh, I'll enter it in the chat here. My blog is uh, GensiniWX.com. And uh, every year, you know, my, my photography is not that great, but uh, I do, I'm an amateur photographer. I, I like to do a lot of uh, time-lapse photography. So you'll see time-lapse in there, which is really helpful for uh, teaching purposes. So if I have like, you know, an hour long animation of a supercell, I can start to show students the rotational aspects of supercells, you know, where the rear flank downdraft forms, where the level of free convection is. I can show them all these things in animation and pictures uh, that are really useful for teaching purposes. So, yeah, I started that blog in probably the mid late 2000s and I've been keeping it up to date ever since. I just, you know, do a little blog post and uh, that way, 
someday when I can't remember things anymore, I can go back to that blog post and remember where I was in, you know, 2005 or 2006, uh, what we were doing. And uh, overall, guys, I, I have a blast when I'm out there, and that's that's what it's about. It's it's an educational experience, and, you know, the students are learning, but I'm learning something new about the atmosphere every day, too. Ricky, um, I'm not sure if you had uh, a question. I, I was going to do our... Uh, Follow-up question, I'll do that and then I'll let Ricky ask his. Uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, students who are in maybe high school, middle school, even some college students, some teachers that watch our shows. Um, what what do you suggest to them? You know, we, we always kind of like to have our guests come on and, and kind of give them, you know, what should they do if they want to pursue meteorology as a career? So, uh, you know, if you were given advice to someone about this career, what would it be? Uh, don't be afraid to take risks, and uh, don't you know? Make sure you have a black a backup plan B. Uh, I know a lot of young students that I talk to; they want to be National Weather Service forecasters. Um, I get that. I wanted to do that too. Um, the reality is those those jobs are pretty hard to get, and I, I see a trend in the National Weather Service in the future of probably maybe not eliminating but reducing those positions uh, where things like the super blend models, right, are going to take over the day five through seven forecasting. But I will say that the forecaster positions that are going to be really important are the ones for extreme weather. So tornado forecasting, hurricane forecasting, where the models kind of often break down and the humans can still really add value. So more than anything, be passionate. You know, I can't state that enough. I, I see students in my classrooms that are just kind of floating through their classes day to day. You know, work really hard. Your work ethic is really important, but be passionate about it. You're you're doing meteorology not because of the money. You're doing meteorology because you love meteorology, and uh, you need to keep keep that always in in the back of your mind. And uh, remember what you're there for. You're, you're there because you love it. And you know, I, for example, me right now, I'm I'm doing this because I love meteorology. I'm not doing this because you guys are paying me to do this, right? I'm doing this because I love meteorology. And I think we all have to remember that is what we're doing this. You guys are doing this because we all love weather. And uh, when the earlier you realize that as a student, the better off you'll be. The other thing that I would say is I don't see opportunities for students in meteorology in the next 50 years unless you have computer skills. And so you have to have to have computer programming skills. I mean, it, there are sectors of meteorology you can probably get away with with having jobs, but I feel like you are going to have to have good communication skills and good computer programming skills in the future if you're going to want to work on the cutting edge problems. I mean, I can't imagine doing what I do on a day-to-day -day basis without, um, you know, programming skills, to be honest with you. Dealing with large data sets, manipulating them, mining them for data, I think that's really important, especially on the research side. But uh, overall, yeah, work hard in math and science classes and don't forget why you want to do it. Uh, you do it because you know you love weather. That's that's a really big thing for me. I, I like. I'd much rather take a student that has uh, works really hard, and has uh, you know incredible drive and incredible passion. That you know may not be the top at his or her class in math and science. I'd rather have that student that's working really hard. Uh, those those students always in the end to me, uh, th they end up performing better. In the long that reminds run. me, Victor. We um yeah. we haven't even asked you this question yet, but what got you interested in meteorology? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, for me and like many other Mets, uh, I, I point back to a single weather event. It was the April twentieth, two thousand and four, Utica, 
Granville tornado that uh, hit my high school. So that one was pretty obvious. You know, I was kind of on a path for engineering at the time, and then that event happened, and I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> you know, nature can do this!" Like, and I started asking all the questions that all of us do: How did this happen? Why did this happen? Uh, who's forecasting these types of things? And I just, I it was a, you know, just started asking a bunch of questions, and I really never looked back after that. So. Yeah, it was the uh, Granville Utica tornado of 2004, which, by the way, was not a very well-forecasted event, but uh, it was a very challenging event. Well, Victor, we, uh, we really appreciate you uh, taking time out this evening to join us. It's been a wonderful show, and I uh, learned a lot, and hopefully we can uh, have you back on the show at some point. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. I really enjoyed it. So good luck with your podcasting. I've you know been following you guys here and there, and uh, it seems like you guys are doing a great job, so keep it up. We appreciate them. Before you, uh, before we log off, go ahead and uh, give our followers, uh, you know, your blog site, how they can follow you on Twitter and things like that. Okay. So the first way you can follow, the first thing I'll talk about is our extended range tornado forecasts. You can find those by just going to any major search engine and typing in ERTAF, E-R-T-A-F. It'll be the first hit. I'm not going to give you the URL because it's too long and nasty, but if you just type in ERTAF, you'll get to that. Uh, the second is my storm chasing photo blog. That's uh, GensiniWX.com. And my Twitter handle is GensiniWX. So you can follow me on Twitter or add me on Facebook. Yeah, de and we'll definitely, uh, we'll definitely uh, put that link to your blog on our uh, Facebook page and our website and Twitter accounts. So, again, we appreciate you joining us tonight. Fascinating stuff. And hopefully we'll be able to get, get you back on. And maybe we can uh, catch a trip out in the plains with you sometime. That'd yeah, be that'd fun. be wonderful, guys. All right, take care. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Victor. Uh, next week, Nick Uliveri joins us. He's a storm photographer from Chicago. He'll be uh, talking to us uh, about weather photography and how to capture the storm uh, and get those amazing shots. So uh, Nick will join us next week. And then... He's I'm a much better photographer than I am. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm not sure what our schedule is next. My schedule didn't have anything, but our other schedule actually had two events, so I'm not sure what those are. So, um, uh, whatever one the other schedule had was, uh, one with Peter. I think yeah. I've been booking shows and not telling y'all what they are, and I don't remember them either. So, uh, yeah. that sounds like something I would do, doesn't it? Yeah. I will throw this out there, though. We do have Levi Cowan coming on May the yes. 7th to talk Levi, about the yeah, hurricane season. Fantastic. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's great. Yeah, he uh joined us last year, and cool. he's looking forward to joining us again this year. We'll talk tropics. We already had one tropical storm, Arlene, that formed out in the Atlantic last week. So very, very short-lived. It got ingested by an extra tropical low, but it was kind of a surprise because I don't think many of us were really expecting it to go tropical, especially at the latitude it was at. But uh, just goes to show, just two years in a row, we've had two preseason named storms. Uh, first one was Alex last year in January, but that was way over by the Cape Verde Islands. And then this year, we've had Arlene. So the next name... Brett, right? Terrible. Yes, I was gonna say I feel terrible because I can't remember. <laughs> Brett, yeah, I yeah. saved you. I saved you. Yep, yep, yep. Cool. And uh, join it. Be following our Facebook page. We'll get our schedule straightened out. Uh, we're gonna have to get our schedules condensed into one, so we'll get yeah. that. Uh, I'm I sure some of the other ERTAF guys would love to join you as well too. I got plenty of other team members there that are working on other things than I am that are much more, in some cases, fascinating. So I'm sure they'd love to uh, be on the show as well too. So you have to extend an invitation to one of those fellows. Definitely, we'd love to do that. Definitely. Peter remembered one, the one I scheduled. It's the Georgia Severe <laughs> Weather Show. I mean May 10th. Uh, Come on, Randy. <laughs> We've got Kelly Dobeck, uh, Andrew Gordon, and uh, May working another guest to come on and talk about the uh, 
severe weather event that was or wasn't uh, across Georgia this year, depending on which one you're talking about, because they've had several. So That's right. So uh, join us. Uh, we'll get our schedule all printed up for you. I know we have Tony Rice coming on about uh, talking about the eclipse. So uh, we have a lot of shows scheduled, so we'll get those uh, events made, and you guys can uh, follow this. So again, thanks for watching the Carolina Weather Group tonight. We hope you have a fantastic rest of the week, and we'll see you next Wednesday night. Have a good weekend.